You're listening to Accelerate Churches Podcast, located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us. We pray you leave inspired, and this message helps you build your faith. We hope you enjoy this word from our lead pastor, Ernest Grant II. You know, I don't really know everyone in here that well. I want to get to know you. Shout out. Good to see you. Glad you're here. But one thing I know about a lot of us, and maybe this is not everybody, but we like to talk. Yeah, we like to talk. Now, some of y'all like to talk more than others, but for the most part, a lot of us in here like to bump the gums. We like to talk. We like to talk about all type of things, uh, and we especially like talking about our favorite subject, which is ourselves. You know, and I came across this statistic that really shocked me the other day. It said that the average person speaks 11 million words a year. And over the course of a lifetime, do you know how many words that is by the time you're 65? You do the math real quick. It's 715 million words. And so if you're going to speak that much, you need to know that words are very, very powerful. W- words are so powerful that in the first chapter of Genesis, for the first 25 verses, God used words as the tool to create the world. Over and over again, we see that God said he takes these extraordinary complex things like us and, and the biological system, the hemisphere, the universe, and he didn't wave his hand. He didn't bang his scepter. All he did was spoke and the material world became existent. And I'll say that not also, we see that when God speaks, things change. You know that when God speaks a word of healing, your situation can change in an instant. God's word is very, very powerful. But if you know anything, you know that in Genesis 2, that he breathed the breath of life in us, and we were made in God's image. So what that means is that we are his image bearer. We are a representative of him on earth. So what that would presuppose is that if God's words are powerful, guess who has powerful words as well? You and I do. And that's why one author said it like this in Proverbs 18, 21. He said, life and death are in the power of the tongue. That means that there is that, that you have dynamite in your dentures, in the words of Tony Evans, that your mouth is a loaded gun, that it can either be used to build people up, encourage them, and help them take their next steps, or you can use it as a weapon to tear each and every person down. And if you think about words, just for a second, you know that life and death is in the power of tongue. Because simply think of jury trials. Poor Sarah has jury duty more than any person I've ever met in my life. I was like, why are you on jury duty again? I was like, let me tell you what you do. What you do is you go in there. I remember I was jury eight or jury eight one time, and the dude had on a neck brace, and he was, the judge was like, hey, uh, sir, why don't you, um, he's like, what do you think about this trial? I said, I can tell that dude is faking over there. I can look at him and tell he's faking. And the, the guy dismissed me from the jury. Anyway, I say all I to say that if you think about jury trials, you know that your word is important because you can, de- you can determine the fate or the destination of somebody's life. You think about a letter of recommendation. If you get the letter of recommendation from the right person, it can either propel your career or it can detour, detour it. You know that if you're at a job, your word can really help people advance their career. You can build people up. You can use it to edify them. You can encourage people or you can cause irreparable harm and scars to their life. I don't know who came up with this word, this statement, but it's one of the worst statements in the world. It says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That person has never experienced trauma in their life. 
Never. Because you know good and well that words can hurt you more than anything else. Like, I look at you, y'all look good, and y'all succeeding, shout out to you. But some of the reason that some of you guys are succeeding is because you had a teacher that told you you couldn't make it. Your mom might have told you that you were just going to be like your dad, and you were like, oh, I'm going to show you. So you took those words, turned it into gasoline to burn, to to be the vehicle that helped you go towards success. And now that you are successful, you're kind of running out of motivation. And so what happens is, is we use words to either scar us or motivate us, but either way, they are powerful. And so what we know about words is this. Words are powerful. God uses them as tools. But we also know that words, our words specifically, matter to God. Can I share with you my most unfavorite verse in all the Bible? Real quick, here it is. Matthew 12, 36. This is what it says. I tell you that men and women, I had to throw the women in there. Uh, I tell you that men and women will, go, will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. That's not encouraging, is it? What is a careless word, Pastor? Well, well, the word here, it can either be an idle word or a useless word or a thoughtless word, right? Careless words are those words that we speak rashly and we don't give consideration to how they impact other people, right? You know, have you ever just said something kind of blurted something out and then you were like, oh, you wish that you could grab it and bring it back in, but it's too late? That's what he's talking about. That's a careless word. It's impulsive. It's thoughtless, it's insensitive, like that, that's what he said. In short, careless words are those words that we speak and which we don't really think about how they impact or harm other people. And so this is what I want you to understand. Your words are so impactful to God that they will be carried into eternity. You see that word day of judgment there? That, that's talking about after we pass away, God is going to remember our words. Now, if you're in Christ, it means that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to give account for the good, and, the good and the bad things that you've done in this flesh. Not for sin, but as a means of receiving rewards. But if you are far away from God, you're going to go to the great white throne of judgment. Where the books are going to be opened up and he's going to be like, yo, you're condemned based upon what you said. Because what you said flows from what's in your heart. The reason that you uttered all of the words that you did is because of what's really inside of you. Therefore, I'm condemning you. Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard came up with a computer, um, and it's built, it has the single largest memory computing system in the world. It has 160 terabytes. I know that thing is expensive. A terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. How many gigabytes of data do you think God has on all of our words? Think about that for a second. What you say is so important that God has it recorded in eternity. Everything you wrote, everything you said, Everything you typed on Facebook, then deleted. Holy Spirit, like, delete that. Take it down. Don't do that. We don't do that here. Like, thank God for the Holy Ghost that didn't allow some of us to type and post some things that we would have been held accountable for. And so this is what I want to do today. I want to help us with what I can describe as undisciplined speech. That's why we're starting a new sermon series today called Tongue Tied. And what I want to do is I want to tell you about the power of words. Um, But I want to help you take your next step in your communication. And so with that in mind, I want to give you seven forms of speech or ways of communicating that are undisciplined. Is that all right today? So I'm going to give you seven forms. You might want to write these down. And then at the end, I'm going to give you a a way in which you can decipher or a way that you can uh, sift through your words to make sure that you're saying the the right things. All right? Here's the first one. 
Here's a, a form of undisciplined speech. Being brutally honest. Being brutally honest. Now, um, here's what I know, is that a lot of us are not really honest with one another. Rarely do we show our, or express our real ideas. We rarely have candid conversations. You know how it goes. Like you have a meeting and you, met, you wanted to say something, but you didn't, and then you decide to share your real feelings with somebody else. Right? You, you, nobody? Okay. All right. Cool. But anyway, it's important to have what we describe as candid conversation. Because candid conversation, it, it, it breeds innovation, it creates ownership, it does a myriad of things. It is important for us to be candid with, uh, with each other. But the problem is, is that some of us pride ourselves on brutal honesty. And brutal honesty is when you say, hey, you're asking for permission to lay aside tact and diplomacy so that you can communicate with other people. And let me just say, like, that sounds all good, and it might be therapeutic to you, but it's often traumatic to other people. Because speaking brutally, what I've noticed is a lot of people are more concerned with speaking brutal than they are with the honesty. They want brutality, but it's more therapeutic because they're doing it more for themselves than the other person. But let me just tell you, when you are brutally honest and you are pointing out someone's fears and insecurities and hurts, you better, and they're not ready for it, they may, ang- they may respond with anger, with sadness, with deflection and anxiety. And, and let me just say this, right? I know that you feel like you can say what you want to say, but get this, civility, kindness does not weaken your message. It only helps people embrace it. How do I know? You just can't say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it. How do I know? Colossians 4, 6. Your speech should always be gracious. It doesn't say your speech should be gracious when, when you're, except when you're angry. It says your speech should always be gracious. Get this. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Let me just tell you, seasoning is, seasoning is, seasoning is so vital. I don't like no bland chicken. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Serve me some bland chicken. Make sure the salt and pepper is there. Like, people season everything. Salt, pepper. Like, if you watch one of those uh, cooking shows, they salt the pasta water. I've seen people salt salad. I'm like, bruh, that's a lot, but okay. The reason that you're seasoning things is because you're trying to make the dish more palatable so that somebody can receive it with joy and enjoy the sustenance of it, right? And the same thing that applies to our, to our foods also apply to our conversations. When you season your conversation with a little bit of grace, with a, bit of, a little bit of love, I mean, some of us put a little, a, a little teaspoon of love in there. Let me just tell you, it makes it more palatable. People want to hear from you. They'll listen to what you have to say. You can't be a bull in a china shop saying whatever you want to say. Like, like, it's okay to give people honest feedback, but dear Jesus, when you're brutally honest, it's like serving someone boiled, unseasoned chicken. I mean, surely you can eat it, but do you really want to when it's got that little skim on the top of it? That's right. Well, that's how your conversations are. When you just go out there, you talk to people all rough and reckless. Oh, I told them what I needed to tell them. Did you? Did you? Now they're going to double down and not do what you say. Here's what you need to realize. And when you realize that you cannot say anything you want 
Psalm 141 verse 3 comes to mind. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Some of us need to put our mouths in solitary confinement. Because you talk way too much. You don't even, you shouldn't even get commissary. Not even a 23 and 1. Just lock you up. I'm saying, this is what I want to encourage somebody. Somebody needs to just memorize that scripture. Somebody needs to just pray about that scripture before you go to work tomorrow. Pray about it. Lord, keep my mouth in solitary confinement so I don't say anything that will not glorify you, so I don't say anything unnecessary, so I don't say anything that I'm going to be held account for long term. Are y'all hearing me today, church? Here's another one. Here's another thing, another form of undisciplined speech, and that is throwing shade. Throwing shade. Some of us throw so much shade that we should just consider ourselves an oak tree. We just, right there, we just give everybody the shade. I, I know, I know, like, it's a cultural phenomenon, right? It's one of those socially acceptable sins, right? We're like, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm just throwing shade or whatever. Like, it's a subtle way of disrespecting or ridiculing somebody. Like, it's a subtle way of slandering someone. And you know how we do this? Verbally and non-verbally. So non-verbal, let's talk about non-verbal for a second. This is what one researcher points out. In personal one-on-one communication, how the information is received is is broken down into 50%, 55% is non-verbal, 38% is vocal, and 7% is words. So what that communicates is that your body language, your, your gestures are communicating something that you often overlook they're doing, that they're doing that. So in other words, your body language, you can be subtly shading someone or slandering them through your body language. You know what that is. You know what that is. It's the subtle eye roll. It's the, I don't know how to do it, but it's like, you know, you, the side eye. Let's say that. You know what I'm talking about? It's the side eye. It's that deep sigh of disgust. That you want everybody in the room to know that you were just upset with this person. You're in a meeting and they suggest the idea and you go, ah, that, it's that, right? It's your body language, right? This is why it's so important for you to have something called self-awareness. You need to know how you come off to other people. Well, I say the right thing. Yeah, it, you may say the right thing, but what is your body communicating? Like, why is your posture that way? Somebody say, well, I don't really think God cares about body language. I, I got receipts. I got receipts. Come on over to Proverbs 6, right? Look what it says. Proverbs 6, verse 16. It says, there are six things that God hates, seven that are detestable or an abomination to him. When it says detestable or abomination, it means that it makes God angry. It creates a visceral reaction to him. Let's look at the first one mentioned. It's an abomination to him. The first thing mentioned is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Now, I want you to know something about haughty eyes. Is the last time I checked, I'm, not a, I'm a doctor, but I'm not an MD. And what I know is that your eyes don't have vocal cords. Your eyes cannot speak. Your eyes don't say words. What, it, what he's referring to with haughty eyes is like a proud look, somebody kind of looking down on you like that. What he's talking about is body language. Are y'all hearing me? He's talking about body language. This is a nonverbal way of communicating your frustration or your anger with somebody. God is saying that when you do that, when you express this stuff, it's an abomination. 
Like specifically haughtiness, it's like this proud, disdainful look. So I'm going to ask you, what's your body language communicating? What's it communicating at work? What's it communicating at home? Do your kids think you're approachable or they know not to talk to you just because of how you're postured in the chair? Are y'all hearing me today? And so he goes on. So there, so you got, the, you got the shade that we throw through our body language, and then you have the shade that we use with our well-timed words and insinuations. We would call that slander. Y'all know about slander, right? It's when you tear people down and devalue that person's reputation in the eyes of other people. Slander is sharing speculation or hearsay about someone that results in the other person having a negative depiction of them. Let me just tell you, nothing hurts more than slander. Well, it's a few things that hurt more than slander, but slander like really hurts. It creates broken friendships. It creates broken relationships. It fractures the local church. It's the process. Let me make it more plain. It's the process of processing your feelings with other people at the expense of their reputation. And even if you do it with your significant other, it's still slander, right? It's, it's, it's still slander. Like when you falsely represent somebody in a way that devalues their reputation, but you won't talk to them about it, but you'll talk to somebody close to them about it, then what you're ultimately doing is defaming their name. They work hard for that name. Sure, they're not perfect. Sure, they mess up on a regular basis. Sure, they're, not try- they're, they're, they're doing things that are wrong at times, but it doesn't give you the right to devalue the good name that that person has worked for. Are y'all hearing me? And so what's happening is this is what we describe as slander. And it's something we need to avoid. Here's the third thing. Telling half-truths and whole lies. Telling half-truths. You know, I love pointing out these studies. The University of Michigan did a study on lying. And they said that 60 pre- 60% of people cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying. And y'all like, is that me? Yes, probably. (laughs) Probably if it's 60% of the room. Yeah, maybe. It says that the same study said that children have the concept, understand the concept of lying by the age of four years old. (laughs) I believe it. That's why you ask your kids, hey, did you clean your room? Like, yeah, I cleaned my room. Well, why is it drawers around? Why is your shoes on the chair? Like, what's happening in here, Right? And adults, we are just as bad as children because we lie all the time. Someone says, hey, hey, did you enjoy that food? you like, yeah, that food was delicious. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it was great. But meanwhile, the little styrofoam plate is in the trash upside down because you don't want them to see how much food you didn't eat. Right? Like, yeah, with the napkin. Like, deep down, we lie. We tell those little white lies. You be like, how did I do up there? You be like, girl, you did great. You're like, greatly disappointing. <laughs> but lying might be, might, it might be like a lot of times we, we lie because we want to avoid punishment. The cop pull you over, where were you going? Oh, I was going to go see my mother. She's in the hospital and I'm, and I'm speeding to go see her. You know, that's a lie. You ain't talked to your mom in six months. You're lying. Cops like, well, why are you going this way? Right? You might be trying to protect somebody from punishment. Like either way, like, but let me tell you, like when you lie, it has consequences. Because when people find out that you've been lying to them, it is one of the things that breaks trust. It will destroy your trust. And your spouse might forgive you. You might be able to go to counseling and it get worked out. But the truth is, is that you're lying at like a job or a friend. You will never be able to repair that relationship quite to the level that you once had it. Or let me just take it back because grace is real and it's alive. It will be very difficult for you to repair that relationship. But here's the thing. 
I don't think many of us are just outright liars, even though some of us might be. I think one of, what we do more than often than not is we practice deceit. Somebody like it. What is deceit? You know what deceit is. Deceit is a, is a half truth that paints you in a good light. It's like when you conceal, distort, or contradict the truth because, because you, you want to be looked at favorably. And so what you do is you deliberately mislead them. It's like, like one of the things I hate to do, I hate missing appointments. If I put you on my calendar, I'm going to make sure that I come see you with, with, the, with all of my energy. I'm going to try to do that. But if I missed an appointment, deceit would be tell, me telling somebody, hey, I had an emergency instead of I forgot or I missed it. Deceit is allowing somebody to believe untruthful account of the event. It's when you tell your boss that you hit traffic when you really overslept. I didn't think I'd get an amen on that. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. I'm going to tell them that. I, I'm, I'm, that that's deceit. And what God is saying is, what God is saying is, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I see you. I see you. I see your, your subtle sleight of hand where you're getting people to listen to things that are untruthful so it paints you in a good light. But guess what? You never get away with it. Because like some of us right now are trying to conceal the truth, but concealing the truth is like taking a volleyball and putting it underwater. Eventually, you're going to get tired and that thing is going to come to the surface. Eventually, it's, you're going to be at the point where you just can't hide all of those skeletons in the closet. Like you got your own personal morgue. Like eventually, all those dead lies got to be exhumed. And so what he's saying is, like, God is against deceit and lies because, well, he's the, he's the father of the truth. Like, God believes the truth. He is the way, the truth, and life. And Satan is the father of lies. John 8, 44. So let's go to the, let's go to the next. Here's the fourth one. I think this is the fourth one. Uh, being divisive. Being divisive. You know, I run into a lot of people in the church today um, and there's a lot of dangers of the church, right? Like, we, we make boogeymans of the church every week. You know, oh, maybe it's CRT. Maybe it's all these doctors. No, no. One of the most dangerous things that's happened in the church is divisive people. It's divisive people. Divisive people are people that use their words to divide people, to cause schisms with other people. They share information to intentionally or unintentionally divide people that Christ died for them to be unified. I mean, just think about, just think about John 17. Think about, think about the night you thought that you were going to be crucified. If I knew that I was going to be crucified, I'm not praying God make the church one as we are one. But unity is so important to God that as he is experiencing what theologians call hematidrosis, when he's got these great tops of blood that are coming through his veins, coming out like sweat, he's praying about the unity of the church. And so what happens is divisive people can often be used as pawns by Satan to divide people that Christ believes should be united. That's divisiveness, right? It's that person that makes that inappropriate remark that you know you shouldn't be saying. It's, it's when someone says hurtful things or stir up division, right? And here's another thing about them. They just love to fight. They have an unhealthy obsession with fighting. They want to fight over everything. Let's, in the church, let's fight over the songs. Why do we sing two poppy songs and then a worshipful song? I would rather sing a worshipful, two worshipful songs and then a poppy song. Why do we have to be? Divisive people slip this little uh, unnecessary idea into people's minds to get them divided. Are y'all hearing me? And so you might be wondering, well, how do you deal with divisive people? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Romans 16, verse 17. This is what it says. 
Paul is finished writing, get this, Romans, the book of Romans, this letter to the Roman church is considered the magnum opus, like his best work, like his best album. And then before he stops, this is what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that may have been taught. What does it say? Avoid them. Avoid them. How do you deal with divisive people? You avoid them. That means not trusting them, but what's in your heart. It means not having them at your house. It means not opening it up to them because ultimately they are going to use that as a tool to harm you. And I know y'all ain't minute, but let me ask you, are you a divisive person? Do you like to just un- unnecessarily quarrel and unnecessarily fight? Like, if, like a lot of times, this is what divisive people do. When they are upset, they will say something to mess up the room because they don't want anybody to be happy. That's divisiveness. And Paul says that we need to distance ourselves from it. Here's number five. Number five is people that dish dirt, dishing dirt. You know, a few weeks ago, I was at the beach with my wife, man, and she was like, hey, babe, why don't you put on some sunscreen? I was like, I don't need no sunscreen, baby. <laughs> I got melanin. I got these natural juices on this scalp. Next morning, <laughs> next morning I woke up and it, my head was all scaly. One of my bros was like, yo, bro, you might want to put some cocoa butter on that because it's... I was like, man, I don't use cocoa butter. I use jerkins. Just put the jerkins on. It's good. Now, sometimes I don't use lotion. Anyway, it's unnecessary. Like, she's so, use dub soap and it, anyway. Anyway, and so my head was like, it was like burning and it, and it really felt bad. But here's the truth is that even though my head burned, nothing burns you quite like people that gossip. People that gossip burn you. You know, like they take, they habitually spread intimate and private rumors as though they're facts, right? They claim that it's true, and what they're doing is they're really deceiving themselves. They have no reason to talk about your business in a private matter. This is what it says in Proverbs 20, verse 19. It says, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Some of y'all know that to be true. Here's another one, Proverbs 16, verse 28. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. If you want to ruin your relationship, all you have to do is gossip. Because what it does is it undermines the confidence of the other person, particularly those in the body of Christ. It will ensure that if it's left unchecked, it will be one of the things that really hurt the church and hurt each other. Here's number six. Number six is using God's name in a self-serving way. Using God's name in a self-serving way. Now, y'all know all about this. You know, you probably read uh, Exodus 20 where it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, he will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. And so you probably wonder about, like, like, what exactly is that? Well, technically, there's two ways that you go take God's name in vain. The first one is when you use his name as a curse word. Some of y'all know about that. I don't need to even explain it, right? The Samuel L. Jackson feel, right? Like, it's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's that. It's that. You know what I'm talking about. And so you're just using God's name. But the, but the other way of taking it in vain is when you do it in a self-serving way. This is people, this is similar to blasphemy, because this is using God's name in a sacred or unholy fashion. It's people that say, God told me, even though God didn't tell them nothing. Because they want to bring some, some weight to their argument, they'll say, God told me. Like, nah, baby, that was Taco Bell. That was your pride. That was, your, that was your selfish ambition that made you do that. And the reason, and how we know is because oftentimes the voice that you hear in your head does not align to the voice of God through those scriptures. 
Because your selfishness and my selfishness can have us at times fooled into thinking that it's God saying it and it's really us. And a lot of people right now are disappointed because someone told you that God was promising you something and God was sitting over there like, no, I didn't. (laughs) No, I didn't promise them a house. I didn't promise them a car. And then when you don't get it, you upset with the Lord. And he's like, don't be upset with me. You better be upset with prophetess Johnson over here. She the one that told you that. I didn't tell you that. That's what I'm saying. You have to be very, very careful when someone tells you that the Lord told them. Right? You have to be careful. Sometimes I think the Lord says something, and I'll say that. I think God is saying this. Or I think God is, here's my favorite, leading me to. Right? That leaves the door open because when someone says God says it, it means it can't be checked. And it can't be tested because God said it, and that, that settles it. Right? So that's number one. Here's number seven. I think this is it. Oh, I don't think this is it. Here, here's number seven. Which number is this? Okay, good, good, good. I thought I got corrected earlier in church uh, at the first service. Here's number seven. Complaining. Complaining. Now, I know no one in this church does this, right? I know that no one online has a problem with this, but, but, but maybe we need to talk about it. Nothing will drain your energy faster than someone that's always complaining. Now, this ain't biblical, and I could be in my flesh, but I tell my kids this all the time, and they hate it, and they've got it memorized. I say, baby, whiners don't win, and winners don't whine. <laughs> I don't know if that's biblical, but you take that home with you. Teach that, teach that to your kids, it'll traumatize them. <laughs> but it, like, it's someone that is always has something negative to say about their circumstance. And the Bible uses a bunch of different titles for it, griping, grumbling, whining, here's my favorite, belly aching. And you think about it, this is something that is so prevalent that it started with the Adam in the garden. As soon as Adam and his wife ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God walked up, he he was in the cool of the garden, and he was like, yo, where are you? And it was like, yo, we we were hiding behind the bushes because we were naked. He was like, "Who who told you you were naked? And then right after that, he complained about his wife. He was like, yo, it's the wife that you gave me. I know Eve was like, I didn't force you to chew and digest that thing, right? They were probably fighting, but that's just complaining. It's always finding the negativity in a situation and then verbally expressing it. It's talking about the unhappiness and the dissatisfaction. Like, like it is an outward expression of discontentment, right? And instead of complaining, though, instead of whining, instead of telling God he got it wrong, maybe we need to practice what Philippians 2 says. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Without grumbling, whatever you do, wherever you are, whatever you do in word or deed, everything without grumbling and complaining. I'm just like, like you listen to some people complain so much that it just wears you thin. Why? Because it's like, don't you have anything that you can be thankful for? Isn't there anything? The opposite of gratitude, the opposite of complaining is gratitude. Like you may not be where you want to be in life, but thank God you're in life. Thank God you got food on your table. Last time I checked, if you don't, we got you. We'll take care of you. Last time you, you, you had food on your table, you had clothes on your back. If you don't have a vehicle, you got a dope bus pass. Like God has been better to each and every one of us than we really deserve. You've got your mental faculties. You're here. Sure, you might have a little bit of credit card debt and student loan debt. But you know what? It's somebody in this world that would be so thankful to have your problems. 
And instead of, instead of being all sad and complainative, maybe we need to do what Paul says in Philippians 4, where he says, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are hopeful, whatsoever things are true, et cetera, et cetera, think on these things. Because when you think and meditate upon the goodness of God, what it does do is it cultivates a sense of gratitude. You know what, Lord, you didn't owe me to wake me up this morning. You didn't owe me to wake up in this bed and turn on the, the hot water because I got electricity and I got gas. I got a little air conditioning. It only keep this one room cool, but at least I'm cool. I'm not sweating. What I'm saying is if you made a list of all the things that you could be grateful for, it would be a long list and there wouldn't be enough paper to contain it. You're always complaining. A lot of people don't want to hear it. Anyway, let me go. I'm in my flesh. There we go. Seven. Here goes eight. Here goes eight. Spreading pessimism. Spreading pessimism. That's what a lot of us do, right? Pessimism is a person that always expresses the worst possible outcome in a situation. That's all they do. Here at Accelerate Church, we have this thing uh, called a culture guide. A culture guide is, is this thing that we've written down, and this keeps us accountable to these particular actions. We have a way called how we roll, and how we roll is like a set standard in which we say this is how we're going to act. This is what you can describe as the, um, as the immune system of our church, that if we get a, out of line with these, then we know we need to challenge each other on it. So you know like an immune system, a foreign pathogen comes in, and then the white blood cells or some of them blood cells come around, and they kind of eat it up, right? Doctors in the building, something like that. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's how this culture guide, how this how the culture guide works. It's like, hey, we do hard things joyfully. We build leaders efficiently. We, we communicate frustration upwardly. That's important because a lot of us like to do frustration parallel when we really should be com confessing it to somebody that's a decision maker. But anyway, what happens is one of the things that we want to avoid is pessimism because pessimism says this thing ain't going to work out. We can't do it. Y'all ain't going to work. This is not going to work. But let me just tell you, you're not being a realist. We don't need realism. The opposite of pessimism is not realism. It's hope. It's hope that even though I don't see how this is going to work out, I know God's going to work it out. I know, he gonna, I know he's going to do it. I know somehow he's going to get the glory out of this. I remember, and I told you this before, we didn't have a building before launch. We had looked for a building for two years. We had a company coming in with hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment that you see here today in the kids' space. And I was like, God, I know that this isn't your will for us. So I got on Google, and I just started looking at places on Google, and I found the Marion house. Called the number, found out that the owner was here. I said, yo, I need to use this for a church place. He was like, I don't know about that. I said, I'll be right there. Sounds good. I'll be right there. And I showed up. And I showed up. And he was like, all right, do you got any letters of recommendation? I said, give me 20 minutes. I'll get you a letter of recommendation. Gave him a but. Did all these things. And God opened up a door for us to launch here. And for us to have 330 people here that Sunday. And for us to baptize 31 people a few weeks ago that are taking next steps with Jesus. And people getting on dream teams. But if I listened to the pessimism, I would have said it would have never worked out. It would have been over. 
But what I'm saying is, in the midst of your circumstance, you don't need optimism because sometimes it's false. You just need hope that says, God, you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to make the way for this. I don't know how you're going to get this paid for. But I just know that you are a way maker and a miracle worker and a promise keeper and you promise to provide for me. I don't know what you're going through right now. But if you're around some pessimistic people, you better preach the gospel to them. Because 2,000 years ago, it was pessimistic on that little Saturday. On that dark Saturday when the disciples were all worried about what was going to happen and they were locked themselves behind the, behind the door and they were up there worried and Peter said, well, you know what, I'm going to go fishing. And he goes out there. They were pessimistic. But the next day on that Sunday, early in the morning, while the dew was still on the roses, before the birds sung their melody, and Mary, Mary Magdalene walked to the tomb, pessimism turned to hope because they found that the body of Christ was not there. It wasn't there. He got up. Old preacher would say he got up with time in one hand and eternity in the other hand. The timeless came into the temporal and Jesus resurrected. And let me just tell you, if God can bring life out of a dead body, sure he can bring life out of your dead situation. Woo! As long as you got blood in your veins, it's not over. And if you got pessimistic people in your life that are just trying to pull you away from God's vision for your life, you better shake them off. Because if God can do it with the resurrection, surely he can do it with your life. Your situation isn't over yet. Your life isn't over yet. Your story is not finished being written. Your healing may delay. Weeping may endure the night. But my Bible says that joy comes in the morning. My Bible says that when the enemy comes in as a flood, the Lord will lift up a standard. That my final destination and my layover are not the same thing. I'm just saying, have some hope. Because God can turn some things around. And so these are a bunch of ways that you can communicate in a great way. But let me give you an acrostic now that I think is going to be able to help you. That before you use some undisciplined speech, I want you to think. I want you to think. Here it is. Here's the T. T stands for, is it true? Is what you're saying true? Have you fact-checked it? Or did you just, or is it hearsay? Is it helpful? Because everything that comes to your mind is not helpful. It might make you feel like it's therapeutic and you need to say it, but it's not helpful. Is it informative? Right? Is it going to help that person live the life that God wants them? Some might say, is it inspirational? I think informative is better. The end, is it necessary? Is it necessary for you to say what, you need, what you're saying here? And last one, is it kind? Is it kind? I think if you go through this acrostic right there, it's going to help you kind of sift through your speech so that you don't communicate in an undisciplined, in a hurtful way that will eventually what that will eventually all be accountable for. Because the truth is this. We've all said some really blasphemous things with our language and our words. We've said some hurtful things. We've hurt people. We've cursed them out. We've cursed them. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that though we were cursed by sin, God made us a blessing through Christ Jesus. That all the vile words, all the nastiness, all the, the, all the things that have been said by us Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross of Calvary and I'm going to endure it for their sins and I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to trample upon it. 
And so we want to encourage you today. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God, but I want to encourage you to take Jesus. Take Jesus. Uh, there you have the community, you have a connection card in front of you or on your seat or, or either online. You can type ACTV to 94,000. And I just want to know, like, like, what step are you going to take today? Maybe you need to dedicate your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't been walking with him and you're like, yo, I, I need to be a part of the family. Well, your first step is recognizing that Jesus is your savior that loves you, that wants to cleanse you. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to God. Maybe you're like, you know what? I grew up in church. I was trying to live the right way, but you know what? I kind of got off course. Well, this is your invitation to come on home. Maybe you're here and you're like, yo, well, I really like this church. I've been coming for a while, but I don't know what to do next. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Go to Open House. Open House is a one-step class that helps you not only discover your purpose, but learn different things about our church and how you can take your next step. Maybe you need to sit for a season and soak up some words. Maybe you need to jump on a crew and do life with someone going in the same spiritual direction because you're lonely and you're having a hard time. Maybe it's time for some of us to get our butts off the bench and get into the game and join our dream team. Because you know what? Christianity is not a spectator sport. Church is not something that's done for you, right? I know that we're used to treating church like it's an event, but let me just tell you, church is not a hotel. It's not an Airbnb. It's a household, and we all play a role in it. When you go to an Airbnb or a hotel, it's somebody else's responsibility, right? They make up the bed. They clean it. We don't do nothing. Most of us don't even wash the door. We don't even take the linens and throw it on the floor at the end, right? Or a hotel. We want to stay at a hotel. We want to call people on our beck and call. We want to make sure that a pillow and all the stuff is on the bed that we need. Well, let me just tell you, the church ain't like that. It's a household where we all have responsibilities. God has endowed all of us with gifts, and this is not a spectator sport. This is something that we all can get involved in. And so maybe you need to join our dream team. Uh, Maybe you just need some counseling or encouragement. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to fill out our connect card. And then on the back, indicate the step that you'd like to take today. Because this isn't stagnant church. This is Accelerate Church. We meet you where you are, and we help you to get to where you go. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for the abundance of your grace and mercy that you've given to us. Thank you that you're the king of glory, that you provide hope and healing to our broken and fractured lives. We pray that you will be with us in the rest of this gathering. In Jesus' name, everybody that agree with that, say amen. Amen. Amen.